If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined with Patrick Trainer. He is a founder of Gamma Income. He's also the co-host of the Banana King podcast. Uh, I had the opportunity to get to know uh, Pat a little bit better a couple of weeks ago. He came by the office and we we had a good chat and and uh, and I thought he had a great story and a, a great future. And I wanted to get him on the show to learn a little bit more about him and to have our listeners learn a little bit more about him. So. Um, Mr. Trainer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Like, you're going to be forever linked to like my image of of uh, quitting my job. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because <laughs> I'm what? Uh, <laughs> go ahead. I'm uh, leaving my job, and I met with you. I had lunch, met with you, and then in the Uber to the dinner, I'm uh, quitting my job. <laughs> That's awesome. How did that go, by the way? Did uh, did did he tell you? you you don't have to spend the next two weeks or did you, did you end up working a couple extra weeks? Uh, no, somebody, somebody suggested to do, to like, um, give like a month's notice because our job is more like complex. Like it takes a little while to get some things done. So, so I said like the end of this month, so really like tomorrow is my last like actual day. So <laughs> nice. I was going to, I was going to do the same. I was going to you know, tell my boss like, Hey man, if you need me to stick around a month or something, like whatever you need with the transition. Yeah. yeah so um, by the time I left your, your office and was like floating back to New Orleans, it was um, on the East coast. It was probably six thirty at that time. So I had like a 30 minute conversation with the president and then maybe a five minute conversation with uh like we'll say like the national director. So, you know, I, I think one was great. And then five minutes is kind of like, okay, he was, he was probably not thrilled to hear that on a Friday. <laughs> hey, y'all fire on Fridays. We quit on Fridays. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Friday's um, the best day for you. You can think about your plan for the next uh, weekend, you know? Nice. Well, tell us your story, man. Tell us uh, where you came from, what you were doing before, uh, how you got into real estate and what you plan on doing going forward uh yeah i guess uh, i've always been interested in you know like uh real estate and finance and um my grandfather had 15 apartments so i was just always around you know the fixing and the flipping and the landscaping and lawns and uh snow removal and all that type of stuff you know some positive things about tenants and some not so positive so i think my grandfather was known as Albany's biggest realtor, <laughs> uh, but biggest realtor because of his size. He was more than 400 pounds. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my father was a, a real estate attorney. So like deeds and uh, county clerk's office and mortgages. Those are things like when I was 10, 12, 15 years old, I've done hundreds of by the time that happened. So uh, awesome. sometime in high school into college, you know, I was like, this is when like finance and investment banking and trading was like got into the foray. Like that was like the top echelon of, of uh, the economy. So I decided I wanted to go into like finance and got into private wealth to start for Merrill Lynch and uh, did some trading and equity analysis and got good in capital markets and investment management and did that from 
2005, you know, five, six to, you know, tomorrow <laughs> and tomorrow <laughs> and tomorrow leaving financial services and getting into real estate and, um, you know, off the side of my desk, but it was, you know, high school, it was like a three sport athlete. And I worked in a restaurant when it was college, it was school and, uh, you know, played football and, um, and I worked in a restaurant. And then after college, I worked the job and then worked in a restaurant. So like, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always like, you know, like kind of got a good work ethic. And, um, so when I had a, the, the jobs bubbled up to a higher income, I started buying some real estate maybe 10 years ago, every year buy one or two properties and, uh, maybe five or six years ago, just started being a part of these 50 and 150 unit complexes. And over time just met 300, 400 operators. And, uh, it came to a point of like, I, I can definitely do that. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, at my company, uh, I couldn't because of you know I'm in mutual fund land, so stocks yeah, sure. and bonds. So I had to. It created a natural wedge, and it came to a point of like I was making, I wasn't making the same as I was making on the vertical income, but that horizontal income was bubbling up to be enough to leave. So, um, so I left. Nice. <laughs> That's nice. the longest part of it. So what kind of properties did you start buying 10 years ago? Uh, bank owned condos and then six unit and seven unit apartment buildings. So maybe I bought um, 16 or 17 units. And then, then I was making, you know, a credit investor type of status. Uh, so it, it became like I was working on that landlording stuff, which wasn't, where I was making the most money. So yeah. I tried to stop trading my time for money. And I think that's something that you're thinking about too, right? Like you've gotten into the property management, you've gotten into, um, you know, whether it's syndications or private placements, however you look at it. But I think what you're saying to yourself too is, you know, passive income that comes in a monthly basis or quarterly basis is a lot stronger than, you know, uh, trading time for money. Right. No, yeah. for sure. For sure. And and landlording is is trading time for money. And people don't talk about that enough. People say like, I want to go buy rental properties for passive income. If you ever own rental properties, you know there's nothing passive about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. and, and so it's like, well, how do you scale your way out of that? Because the the and I guess everybody's different. Maybe there's somebody who wants to die with one dollar more than the second richest guy in the world, and that's what drives them. I mean, but for me, you know, every year it's like, all right, I want to make twice as much money next year as I made last year. And then finally I got to a point where it's like, all right, I just want to make the same amount of money. I just want to work half as much. <laughs> and uh, and so you kind of like unpack it and work backwards from there. And it's like, well, how can I, like I'm doing all this stuff, but, but how, can I, how can I still reap the financial benefits of it, but not be the one actually doing it? And it's, you know, it's, it's leverage, but it's instead of leveraging dollars, you're leveraging people. And so, um, you know, I, I think I told you, I managed personally, I managed the first 26 properties we had, and it was terrible. And then I hired third party managers, and it was worse. Yeah. And so, so the solution was to build a property management company <laughs> to where I'm overseeing it, I'm making sure it's done right. But I'm not actually doing it because I don't have any skill sets around plumbing right. or I'm yeah. not an electrician. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I was. It's kind of like every time there's a four day weekend is a surety that there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For I was. Sure. Uh, I can't remember if it was Fourth of July or Memorial Day, but I'm out in the boat with like a lot of friends, and um, you know, I think the air conditioning went out somewhere in New Jersey, and um, like the fire department comes, police come, like for for air conditioning to go out, and um, so like I'm on the phone for hours in Texas. And it's a Saturday and everybody else is having a good time. And they're looking at me and I'm just like, I'm on a different picnic table, just like having these conversations with police officers and firemen. And, and uh, they're like, I'm never doing that. <laughs> I'm never like doing what you're doing. And they're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. So I think like what we're doing right now is like it improves scale and you can only do scale when it's, uh, you know, easily when you can have a leasing office and a property management company. So, you know, usually it's not perfect, but it's like 100 units sounds about right for getting leasing offices and property management. And can any one person do that by themselves? Not really. It would be like your whole net worth. And then you're putting like all your eggs in one basket. So I feel like this is the best way for me to scale. And um, some of what you were saying last year was, basically a year where I could have had the net worth keep kind of creep on, keep on creeping higher. But um, I chose to have some virtual assistance and build out an infrastructure uh, where I kind of take a step down to take the step up. And uh, it's a choice. It's a choice you have to keep making. And it's hard. It's hard to turn it like it's just, you know, I, I don't know if I told you this. I've said it a million times when I turned those 26 units over to property management. Um, you know, fast forward 24 months and and I had bought another, you know, 50 units and a few apartment complexes. And it was like, I wouldn't have done any of that if I was still personally managing those 26 units. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a shit show. The property managers lost tons of money and my portfolio performed horribly because I wasn't babysitting it. But it freed up my time, energy and focus to go build all this other stuff. And it didn't bankrupt me while they were doing a terrible job. And I've taken it back and now we're doing great again. But, you know, sometimes it's, and and that was, dude, that was my, I remember, I remember trying to make the decision, like when to turn it over to property management. I remember, I remember doing the math and being like, dude, that's like 60 grand a year. Like, you know, and yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't justify it. You know, I couldn't justify that. And, and, but but when you do it, when you're forced to do it and you see the productivity on the other side, it's like, well, I need to give everything away. You know, so that that is like that is like my mission is to just give as much away, just keep giving away and just keep giving away and just create SOPs and create systems and processes and hire people and put them in there. Um, the reality is most of the people I'm hire are better at everything than I am. Yeah, I'm yeah, not really just doing I'm not really. I'm not really good at much except for like <laughs> a willingness to take ri- a willingness to take risk and a, like a little a little bit of charisma when it comes to like sales and you know what I mean but but everything else is most people are better at right like like my property manager is better at managing property than I am my marketing guy is better at marketing than I am my project manager is better at managing my rehabs than I am like you know, and yeah, because you're only devoting like 5% of your time to it, you know, right? Would you be good at that? I mean, I I, I talked this with one of my virtual assistants, she has like an opinion that I'm not great with technology. But 
I'm like choosing to not be great with these technology things because I have to th- think on the 30,000 foot view down of like the vision of the organization. And if I step into the minutia of the day-to-day singles and doubles and like, you know, like whack through the weeds, like it's uh, not going to be the most productive dollars per hour. So, yeah. um, you know, I think like you kind of think about what are dollars per hour worth and over time, you know, it's $50 an hour, it's $500 an hour. And you keep on thinking like, what is going to be my most productive hours? And that has to let some of the properties kind of go. And uh, yeah, I, I sold one of the con the first property that I ever bought, I sold this year. And, um, you know, I think it was a cash flowing asset. And of course, you know, it didn't double, but it was pretty close to doubling. Um, and, you know, basically just buy it to build the coffers, build the coffers to build this business up. And, that should be able to buy some, you know, $15 million properties. <laughs> so, so what does the structure of your company look like today? What do you, I mean, you quit your job tomorrow and you've hired virtual assistants and your, your business model is you're going to start a fund and go buy apartment complexes. Is that what we talked about? Yeah. Like my goal is like for my uh, group, like I think what I told you is, you know, my group is closer to high net worth individuals and, it's a lot of folks. So what I'm trying to do is like cobble, cobble up a couple of dollars and um, take down some larger properties. So uh, a $3 million facility is just not big enough. So I think if we do a $5 million capital raise, we can buy $15 million worth of self-storage. Um, or separately, if we find a hotel that's like, like on an auction block uh, that's like lost its Marriott brand, can we go into it and do the renovations and and make it uh, Hilton or Marriott again, um, or it's a. Is that how that works? Is that, I've, I've never played in the space. Is it? Is it oh. that? Is it that they they have a certain standard quality standards, and if if the owner operator drops below those standards, they pull the brand and they say, yeah. "Hey, call us back when you get your shit together, and we'll give you the brand <laughs> back." Uh, you had it pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like within Marriott and Hilton. That's where almost all the stays are. Um, so yes, there's Wyndham and some uh, intercontinental, but for the most part, it's Marriott and Hilton, at least in the United States. Uh, seven to eight years is when you have to freshen it up. Maybe that means a million dollars. Sometimes it's $2 million. Uh, but the problem is, is most people that own hotels, they're institutions for the most part. They don't, similar to multifamily, they don't want to do that labor. So they'll just sell the asset. And uh, since they have most of the time, they if you have like two hotels, you usually have 20. So uh, the, the speed of close is actually more popular. So they're much, much more apt to just put it on an auction block, which is helpful to all cash buyers. Um, but then you have to do the construction. They lose their flag and 65% of their revenue goes down. So uh, they better get that flag. So um, oh, cool. Interesting um, so yeah, you, yeah, you get a lot of revenue. Uh, from just being associated to Marriott. Um, so, of course, they get royalties uh, that are helpful to them, just like McDonald's. Um, but, you know, it's a 24-7 business. There's a few revenue streams that come from it. So I think it's just turnaround projects. It's it's more labor than multifamily. It's more labor than self-storage. But I think there's some environments that, you know, self-storage or multifamily can come in and just be out of the market cycle and just be very unattractive for a moment of time. And I think being diversified through 
hotels and self-storage and multifamily is how I'm trying to build build the practice. So uh, how are you so high on hotels with Airbnb and VRBO and the short-term rental movement? Do you not think that that's going to hurt the hotel industry or has that already corrected? Yeah, I think it's already hurt the hotel industry. So um, will it amplify? Um, I think to a degree, yes, in certain markets. I think in the rural markets, like you think about the, those uh, bed and breakfast and those things that overlook lakes that a luxury home can take over. I think that's a real risk to those types of places. But in city centers and like that suburban sprawl where there's so much business being going on, similar to your business, people have to go into certain areas and you know conduct business and their companies aren't going to approve Airbnbs. <laughs> uh, so business travelers is going to be a big thing. By airports is going to be a big thing. Uh, but I think in the tertiary markets, you know, Airbnb has a has a big presence. Um, I think in municipalities, they're being more stringent with what it, what is an approved Airbnb. So I think they will be taxed more heavily and, over time. Yeah, and then you have and then you have the hotel lobbies that are that are really pushing the the regulations. I mean, it happened in yeah. New Orleans. I mean, it's about to happen in Baton Rouge. It happened in Atlanta. Um, I mean, the, the hotel lobbies are pushing hard to to get them as banned, and you know, and that was the reason. Yeah. People always ask me why I never bought an Airbnb, and it was like, well, I don't want to buy a property that fix a business model like that. The, the they could change the law like the next day, like, hey, I know yeah. you paid a million dollars for this property that's you know supposed to be bringing you a hundred thousand dollars a month, but we changed the law and you can really only rent it out for twenty five hundred a month now. I'm like, well, yeah, that doesn't work. Risk. Um, it's for sure a real risk. I have somebody that's buying in a, in a rural lake and he wants to like, just go out there for the weekends and Airbnb it for the rest. I'm like, okay, you know, that's a. So that actually sounds less risky to me. And, and the reason it does, I'll I'll tell you, uh, there is a girl, I said girl, she's a lady named Avery Carl, who has like kind of positioned herself as the expert on, um, on short-term rentals. So she wrote the the short-term rental book for bigger pockets. She's okay. got a, a real estate brokerage called the short-term shop. And so most of her rentals, most of her short-term rentals are, are in either Gatlinburg or like Panama city. And uh, when I interviewed her, uh, she, her, her position on it was she lives in Nashville. Her position was the people buying Airbnbs in places like Nashville and Austin and new Orleans, are at a lot more risk because those those local governments don't know how to handle it. The local hotel lobbies have a stronghold. Like they don't want them in there. They're not helpful. You know what I mean? Whereas mm-hmm. when you when you go to markets that have that have already become accustomed to short term rentals, like Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or 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 you know uh, the Panhandle of Florida, right? Like they've been doing vacation rentals since the seventies, you know, think ski resorts and like, or, you know, these different like little. Yeah. Myrtle ski, beach and places like, like that. Yeah. Those, those places they've had Airbnbs for 50 years. They're not changing the rule, right? They didn't call it Airbnb back then, but you know, they had short-term rentals for 50 years. They have learned to love it. They've learned to tax it, right? Those small local municipalities, they survive off of that Airbnb tax, off of that short-term rental tax. So they want them there. Yeah. So she yeah, said, that's why. Municipalities tax and some don't because there's a lot of places that have 
Well, you want you want the one that's going to tax you. It's counterintuitive. You think you want to you want to run from the taxes, and nine times out of ten, like I'm a big believer in money goes where it's treated best. You want to run from the taxes. That's why we invest in in, in red states. Not you know we're not we're not buying. We're not going to have tenants in New York or California where it takes nine months to to kick somebody out and attack us to the roof. But in the, in in this certain circumstance, we, we I think the city taxing it high is a good thing because it means that they're incentivized to not change the rules, right? Because right. then they become your partner. Then they become they become you know they're they want you there. So yeah, then they're not they're not going to yeah. So then then you have a less risk of them being willing to change the laws on you because they want you there. Yep. Yeah, I'm tracking with that. Yeah, I think um, I'm I'm clicking on the Sunbelt area too. It's um, you know I have six, sixteen or seventeen apartments up in um, like like that New York City area, and through COVID, it took maybe a year and a half to evict somebody. So maybe it took more than that. Um, probably twenty twenty five thousand dollars of attorney bills plus them non payment plus waiting. So. Uh, yeah, it's rough. It's rough to to have them over in that direction, but it's still just like a lot of markets. There's with with the problems that leads like the demand for who's going to solve the problems, and so you can make good cash on cash returns, or you can you know really increase the value of a property because there's a lot of eyeballs on the Sun Belt because of the low taxes. So um, you know when when somebody says this Metroplex is uh, number three in the country. How many institutional buyers come into these markets? You know, I have a couple of people that are talking about some Montgomery, Alabama, and Birmingham, Alabama. There's a lot of eyeballs coming into some of these markets now, and um, the difference is uh, 300,000 people going to 400,000 is one thing, but for it to get to a million, like that's that's a hard lift. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, some big cities will kind of have their day again, but this is just an environment that's cyclical, and I don't think it's you know, this isn't the win for some of those, like what you said, blue cities that have high pensions and high liabilities. And uh, that's not going to just end anytime in the near future, you know? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, for, this, for the sake of time, I want to hop over to our radio round. I got a couple questions for you. The first one is, what's your favorite book? Uh, favorite books? Um, I guess I always think about like the the new ones that I'm reading. You know, you and I talked about who, not how, and that was really helpful to me. It's it's, it's like it hits you in the face that like, of course, I shouldn't be thinking about how do I do this and how do I do that. Um, you know, it's a you know, it's a great a great little spinoff of that that I actually pulled out earlier today. It's buy back your time. So uh, um, okay, yeah, there's it's good. It's good. Um, it's good on Audible, or it's it's good to read. It was a, a, one of my partners recommended it, and I love it. And my my complaint to my staff all the time is like, dude, I get decision fatigue. Y'all come in my office and ask me like, what color toilet paper to use? Like constantly, like every thirty seconds, somebody's walking in my office asking me something. I'm like, dude, I can't make this many decisions. Y'all have to start making decisions. Y'all need to like yeah. leave me alone so I can get something done. And, uh, but there's like a whole chapter in here about it. And he's got like a, a one, three, one rule. And, and, and basically what it is, is like all of his employees, they have to follow the one, three, one rule before they're allowed to ask him for help. And the, it's, it's clearly defined the, like the one problem, right? Cause sometimes you get, you get somebody comes to you and they kind of go on a, a rant and it's like, all right, well, there's like eight problems. Like what's your one question? So define it down to one problem. 
offer three potential solutions and then suggest which one you like. So like, you know, if we need it, if, if my, my marketing guy Cole, he needs, to, we need to change the color of the logo. Okay. So instead of Cole coming to my office and going, Hey, what color do you want the logo? And I sitting here for 30 minutes talking about logo colors. I would say, I would suggest Cole come to me and go, Sterling, we need to change the logo color. The three different options you can look at are blue, red, or yellow. I think the blue looks the best. What do you think? Yeah, blue. Good. Go. Right? Versus the... Nice. <laughs> you know, so we're actually... Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm struggling with like a video editor and it's like, it's just frustrating because it's like, why am I like looking at YouTube of transitions and subtitles? Like why... I need you to like just get 1% better every time, you know, just keep on getting better. So... I'm with you on that for sure. You were saying one three one, and I was uh, there was this in college. We had like a two one two rule, like an hourglass figure of a girl. You know, two yeah. one two is the goal. So <laughs> one three one is like. <laughs> is <there. laughs> you had me uh, thinking about that. The old college. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, next question: What's your favorite quote? Um, you know, like, I think like the Grant Cardone quote of like millionaires is the new middle class. So just get bigger. You know, I think that's, um, we just have to, if if we're doing what everybody's doing, we're going to get the same results as everybody. So like, we have to think more creatively. We have to be active in our investments. We can't just like go in the most passive way of like a target date fund in a 401k. Um, we're we're trying to get like the place in the Hamptons or, uh, get a different life. Uh, you have to do things differently. So I think that quote is strong. It's so strong. It's so strong. I was thinking about this earlier today, you know, because like, I think of myself as successful and I think of myself as rich, but like, that's really just because my, my, like my anchor is like 1991. Right. Like I like I compare my net worth and my income and everything to like how I interpreted it as a child, which which, as we know, like, you know, you would have to have two dollars and thirty one cents in nineteen ninety one to to buy something that costs a dollar today. You know, that's not the right way to look at it, because because really, when I look at like all of my friends, my peer groups, my GoBundance members, you know, other successful individuals, you know, that I, my peers, I'm not, you know, they're all way more successful than me. And, and we're just like, we're just comparing this, these amounts we make to like old outdated amounts. Like a millionaire was a cool thing to be in 1990. It's just really not. Yeah. I mean, think about what a home was in 1990 versus what it is now. So it doesn't like a millionaire these days. It's like, it's a, you gotta, you have to be there. <laughs> you <Right>. know, so, <laughs> I think like, I, what, go ahead. What were you saying? I'm I'm a multimillionaire and I'm broke half the time. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, you know, for these investments that both you and I do, you know, whether, whatever the rule is for 300,000 or $400,000 a year. And uh, it's either one million or two million dollars in net worth, and I think that's a good threshold. You know, it's not so, good somebody making fifty thousand dollars, but it is like where we should be thinking we need to be to the top two percent of income earners, top three percent of income earners, and that's you know that's our goal to be there or above that kind of every year. You know, 
Yeah, for sure. But they're, I mean, they're even, they're even, so the standards to be an accredited investor to invest in a 506C, or it's, it's still a $1 million net worth. Um, and it's a $200,000 income or 300,000 for a married couple combined. Um, there's been a lot of talk about increasing that. It's crazy that it's a blanket policy across the whole country because a hundred, you know, $200,000 a year is like a freaking CFO in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but it's a dog walker in New York City. Yeah, you know what I mean, so or, or San Francisco. So it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because it just you yeah. put peanut butter spread it like that. Um, it definitely, yeah, it definitely doesn't make sense when you when you put put it like that. But it is. Uh, are they are they capable of losing all this asset? You know, like this thing gets hit by a hurricane. And the insurance goes under. Uh, is this person's hundred thousand dollar investment? Does this person care or not? And that's kind of how I look at all these things that I do. Is I'm only putting fifty, one hundred fifty thousand dollars to work. So it's not the end of the world. Like it would suck, <laughs> but right, it's not right. the end of the world. Like I think I might have told you, like my worst investments in private placements at eight percent, and that kind of like, uh, you know, irritated <laughs> me quite a bit. Dude, if you if you if your mutual fund performed at eight percent for five consecutive, like you would be ecstatic. That's great. Yeah, if it was a bond, yeah. <laughs> I think like for these for these things, um, I would compare them. I would compare the preferred returns to bonds, and I would prefer uh, compare the internal rate of return to stocks. So, how are you doing? Like compare each year, compare it to it, and. Um, I think well, any one year, maybe maybe you can hit the ball out the park with some stocks. So, but also, any one any one investment with these private placements, you can hit a home run too. So, what is your? I want to. I want, and I don't even know if you're allowed to talk about this. But I'm sure you are. Still no questions, but like as an investment manager for the last X number of years, you know, in the equity space, in the bond market, and all of that. What types of returns? What, what average types of returns were you getting your clients? Because in the in the commercial real estate space, right, we've been beating up your your side of the, the aisle for quite a while. Say, so, oh, we make so much more than. But I'm just curious. Like, I mean, because yeah. if I just if I just blindly, you know, filled out a a little form and invested in a you know a Roth IRA, and they just kind of like, all right, we'll put we'll, we'll put this in in uh, large cap, this in mid cap, you know, this in whatever. Like that's that's yeah. probably I mean, going to spit out thing. about seven and a half percent. Uh, yeah. If you pushed it out like uh, forty years or fifty years, it would probably be like seven to nine percent returns for the stock market. Um, the two thousand and tens was the best uh, performing decade of the stock market in the history of the stock market. The so two thousand the two thousand tens is from two thousand ten to two thousand twenty. Yep. So. Um, yep. So. Uh, essentially, the S and P 500 in that decade averaged 16 percent per year. So, of course, it wasn't linear, but it was that was the average every year. So, once you push over to the large cap growth, which is technology names, that that number gets closer to 19 percent. But uh, what what you're talking about is a diversified basket, which is some small caps, some values, right. some, some emerging markets, maybe some bonds if you if you uh, are closer to retirement. Um, so if you thought about a 60-40 stock to bond portfolio over the last decade, you know, we're probably thinking about something that was between six and eight percent, similar to the numbers that you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because the bond market was so 
atrocious with zero interest rate policy for, you know, basically the whole 2010s. Um, so yeah. now if we're talking about, you know, 2020s, you know, the first decade of the 2020s was a was a recession with COVID, right? Um, and then what, we're, what we experienced last year, which is high inflation, the stock market fell 25% from January to, I believe it was August or September. Maybe we've come up 15% from that period. So um, I don't, I don't poo poo like stocks. I don't poo poo like the the bond market. I think it fits into a certain class. And what we do over here is private investments, private equity. So we should get a more accelerated return because uh, we're illiquid. So the, the the premium that you pay for instant liquidity, I'm scared of, uh, you know, Amazon stock right now. I'm selling at this instant. You know, right, um, right. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine. I want to get out of my oil-based uh, investments or whatever that might be. Okay, I've never heard it described that way. That's a that's a uh, awesome pers- perspective. Well, um, we are running out of time. <laughs> we we dove into in the show and went on another fifteen minute tangent. Um, All good. Sorry. <laughs> what is your uh, favorite thing to do outside of work? Uh, me and Rhea, we're both kind of like foodies. So we try to find like a lot of nice restaurants. So awesome. tonight we went to like some nice French place, getting some steak and escargot and, and things like that. But, um, you know, we like to travel a little bit. I'm a big sports guy. Um, you know, so I, I, we try to go to some baseball games and some football games, but for the most part, like what a lot of people like, you know, we've got a place on the beach now. So that's, uh, it's easy to do some long walks on the beach with some podcasts, listen to, you know, rent and roll radio show. <laughs> hey, that's a great show. That's a great show. Um, yeah. How can our listeners get in touch with and find out more about you, invest with you, learn from you? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think on LinkedIn is the easiest way to reach out to me. Um, you know, Pat Trainer, but Gamma Income is the managing director for, and uh, Banana King is the name of the podcast. So, We'll be on all the social media stuff in short order too. I have to just awesome. get like a video editor ready to rock. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, as soon as you're ready, shoot it over. We'll share it and you know, get you as many, get you as much attention as we can. Yeah, I appreciate you taking some time, and it was good to ca- catch up again. It was, um, it's gonna be interesting how it how it all works out. But I think like you're tied to my last day at work, and you're tied to when I quit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we talk, hopefully I'll be unemployed as well. Yeah, yeah. Give me a call when that happens. That's when we should do our <laughs> podcast. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to keeping up with you in your journey, Pat. Cool, man. Have a good one. I appreciate it. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.